Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Today's reading comes from Matthew. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. Now are you to be called instructors, nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. God. Y'all can take a seat now. Thank you. Thanks, Amy Lou. Well, hey, quickly before I get to the stuff I planned to say, there are a lot of people here today, which is a wonderful thing, but I never want us to be confused that the church is not a religious variety show, and the church is not me, nor is it this building, nor is it this service. The church is the people. It's the networks of friendships under the Lordship of Christ. So I would like to please encourage you to remember that, like, we're just people. We're just people. And so as you come into worship on a Sunday morning, I hope that you will be eyes open to the people around you. If this were not my job, I would be so overwhelmed to come in on a Sunday morning and try to turn on my extroversion. So I so understand I have to like have intense periods of solitude throughout the week to be as social as I am on Sunday mornings. <laughs> but please, please be eyes open to the folks around you. Every Sunday morning when you come in, look for those people, even if you're new, who are you know, deer in the headlights. Uh, you never know what people are walking through. No matter like how well put together we are, you never know how fragile, how vulnerable the people on, on your left and your right are. You don't know the hopes that have been deferred that are making their hearts sick, the, sick, the joys they're celebrating. And so I, I commend to you, I commend to you, just like we do when we, we receive communion to discern the body of Christ and notice each other, I commend to you to try to notice one another on a Sunday morning and not rush in and rush out. Do you hear me? Okay, good stuff. Well, um, I, I held a lot of jobs in college. Uh, I had a lot of fun ones. I was a valet parker. I probably parked for some of you, and we just never knew it. And now you're dig up in this church. Um, I worked at Office Depot Store 359, where I provided fanatical customer service. <laughs> it's also where I got certified to operate a forklift, something that you may not know about me. I know how to operate a forklift. Uh, I was a worship leader at a number of, of church startups, including a church in Bixby, where I was the only non-family member of the pastor. Um, but one of the jobs I had along the way was on campus at ORU. I worked for my friend Rob Fouch in campus events. And one of the things that I helped to do in, in that role in campus events was help put on you know, one of the most frequented and like 
difficult to pull off events on campus, which was mandatory Wednesday and Friday chapel. And I did not have any role up here. I was the doorman at like kind of the, the VIP entrance at the front. And so I'm seated there letting people in and out as the folks who are leading worship and those who are speaking and higher ups in the administration transitioned from this, the private space where they could, uh, you know, be in whatever mood they're in to public space where they're under the lights and there are cameras rolling. And I never had a negative experience. It was never like anyone was a grouch behind the scenes, but they sure could have been because once they step into the lights, the cameras are on, students are watching, they're wondering, you know, who's going to be speaking this week. And it was kind of like when, you know, when I was a kid and we'd all be around the dinner table and uh, my mom's back here and my brothers and sister and I were all being grouchy and mom was getting on to us, will you guys please, and the phone rings, Odom Residence. We all do that now. I do those versions of that now, so not just to to harp on my mom there. But in our passage here in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is giving us backstage access to the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leadership of the people of Israel. The scribes were people with formal theological training. They were like religious lawyers. And then we have the Pharisees who were a kind of a class of lay pastors who didn't necessarily have formal theological training, uh, but they did live according to the strict religious ascetic. And as we look at this story within the context of Matthew, um, Matthew has Jesus in this, uh, he's organized his gospel in such a way that Jesus' speech here directed at these leaders was part of a broader discourse. It was a prophetic indictment against those people that had been entrusted with the law and with the temple and with the spiritual life of the people. And if you go on to read the subsequent chapters in Matthew's gospel, Jesus in Matthew 23 is kind of like William Wallace in the movie Braveheart, who's going out and he says, what are you going to say? He says, I'm going out to start a fight. And Jesus is going to start a fight that's going to put wheels in motion. And ultimately, the religious leadership is going to conspire together to kill Jesus. And it's this posture of hard-heartedness that not only leads them to cry, crucify for Israel's Messiah, but it's the same posture that ultimately will lead to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 67 to 73 AD or so at the hands of the Romans, something that Jesus predicts will happen in Matthew chapter 24. But if we zoom out a bit further and think not just of, of where does this story fit within Matthew's gospel, but thinking about the people to whom Matthew is writing as he's pinning his gospel, he's issuing a word of warning to this largely Jewish Christian audience that he hoped would be reading his gospel. And it's a message to them concerning their own journey toward holiness, their own motivation for their, their spirituality. And he also issues them this really incisive word of caution against thinking too highly of their favorite spiritual leaders. As we think about the text today, it's going to help us to do the same things. So the first word of warning that Jesus extends to the Pharisees and the scribes comes in the first three verses. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Now, it's interesting here 
that Jesus does not negate their theology. Jesus doesn't say they're wrong in what they're teaching you, at least not here. In fact, he actually emphasizes the validity of their teaching office by saying they sit in the seat of Moses. He's saying they sit in in a kind of position of authority over you in interpreting the law. Jesus' issue with these people is that the overall shape and values and rhythms and practices of their life are not in sync with the things that they're instructing others to do, and that the way they're teaching other people, especially in light of the fact that they don't practice what they preach, is inflexible and burdensome. Jesus said these teachers tie up heavy, cumbersome loads And they put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. It's like, good luck trying to obey all of this. I'm not going to help you in the process, but if you don't, shame on you. John Chrysostom is this guy, a church leader in the fourth century. He's known as the golden-tongued preacher. And John Chrysostom said, this is the opposite from what the truly good pastor ought to do. He ought to have a rigor, he ought to be a rigorous and severe judge in things concerning himself, but in the matter of those whom he rules, he ought to be gentle and ready to make allowances. For those who are Christian leaders in some capacity, and we have a lot in our church, people who serve, you lead a small group or you lead a parachurch organization, we have a lot of retired ministers in our congregation. There are a lot of us who just see ourselves as being on ministry in the world. For those who are Christian leaders in some capacity, if we're doing it right, I think that our greatest ongoing challenge is not the rise of secularism or the political polarization of our age, or AI and the digital era that we're in. I think the most difficult part of being a Christian leader now as it was then is actually being a Christian oneself. In submitting oneself to the ongoing process of being saved, especially in the non-visible parts of her or his life. And similarly, the greatest obstacle for the church today, or we could say even for the lay person today, the greatest obstacle today is not the generational tectonic plates that are shifting, or the increase of what they call the nuns and the duns, nor any other force or external factor. I think the greatest challenge we face is resisting the urge to blame externalities for, to, to explain the decline of the church and with sobriety to maintain an ongoing posture of repentance and putting our faith in Jesus and responding to his call for our life in our time to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses and to follow him. And if you exercise that kind of humility and introspection and focus on one's own response to Christ's call, this would invariably produce in us a posture toward others of mercy. It's the opposite of what the scribes and the Pharisees are doing here, being unwilling to lift even a finger to help, being easy on themselves and hard on others. But if we, as John Chrysostom said, were serious and diligent in stewarding our own sin, our own response to the gospel, our own faith, It would soften us. It would produce in us, particularly to those outside of the church, a posture of mercy. 
why would we expect the person who is outside of the family of God to get in line with our cultural views when we struggle to get in line with them ourselves? Paul said, what business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? I really love uh, the book, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. If you've taken catechesis, you've heard a lot from that book. Uh, I really like uh, the late Alan Kreider. And Kreider, in his book, tells the story of how the church grew from a fringe Jewish sect to becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire. And in his telling, central to the spread of Christianity was the insistence, particularly in the first 300 years, on the credibility of the lives of real Christians, on the integrity of the lives of real Christians, that we needed to live, we needed to live ordinarily wonderful and bright and salty lives. This comes from a document called the Apostolic Tradition that was read really widely in the fourth century. They said, those who come to the church in order to become Christians are to be examined with all rigor for what motive they have abandoned their pagan religion for fear lest they enter out of mockery. The, the church is talking about the steps they're taking to ensure that those who are baptized into the church are like Christ. So if a woman or a man comes with a true faith, they're to be received with joy questioned about their occupation, and instructed by the deacon. In this manner, he's to be instructed in the Scriptures so that he may renounce Satan and all his services. So now we're getting to the practical realities of how do we ensure that our Christians are like our Christ. If one is a brothel keeper who is a caretaker of prostitutes, either let him cease or be cast out. You want to become part of the church? You've never even come to a worship service before, never received communion, never been baptized. You're interviewing to be part of the catechumenate, to be a person studying to become a Christian. Step number one, let's talk about your job. Ooh, you're in that industry. We'll have to quit that today. If you're a brothel keeper, let him cease or be cast out. If he's a maker of idols or a painter, let him be taught not to make idols. Either let him cease or be cast out. Likewise, a charioteer who fights and goes to the games, either let him cease or be cast out. They say, if we've left out any other thing, the things themselves will inform you, for we all have the Spirit of God. The integrity and the credibility of regular Christians mattered. And the church worked toward those ends. The Apostle Paul insisted on this same rigor when he described those who would be overseers of the church in 1 Timothy 3. He says, here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now, the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil." 
He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. I want you to notice Paul's emphasis is not on ministry skill set. He says they must be able to teach, but he doesn't lead with that. It's not they need to be a great systems thinker because the church is growing at scale. What he describes here is an orderly private life that will result in a credible public life. Alan Kreider says, from an early date, hypocrisy was a major challenge in the church. When the Christians talked about loving your enemies, their neighbors had been intrigued. But when they found that the Christians didn't do what they said, they dismissed Christianity as a myth and a delusion. The church understood that Christians had to embody the message They had to obey the stuff that Jesus said if their churches were to grow. I've recently said to those who are taking the catechesis course, our staff is also going through it right now, that it could be that the greatest evangelistic thing the church could do today is to stop handing out tracts and to stop making, you know, videos online and no social posts with an, you know, an evangelism kind of believe our message uh, practice. And even just to abandon at the same time our own cultural critique of the godlessness of our age and instead focus on our own obedience, our own conversion, and our own growth in the fruits of the Spirit. Those of you who were, you know, in church world around 2003, 2004 will will remember uh, Donald Miller's Blue Like Jazz. I mean, that was like a moment. (laughs) When that book came out at just the right moment. And some of us will remember he's on this pagan uh, university campus in the Pacific Northwest, and he sets up a confessional booth among all these, like, wild, you know, like, partying students. But it was a reverse confessional. He was confessing to these people the sins of the church. And it evoked these deep pain points in all of these people. And we have so self-righteously, as the people of God, trumpeted our morals and our values, and we have failed at home ourselves. Perhaps the greatest evangelistic thing that we could do today is simply learn to be the church and to learn to be Christians. And we who have been saved to embrace the ongoing nature of our salvation today. Brendan Manning said, the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, who walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world finds simply unbelievable. And yes, I did get that from that one DC Talk song. Yeah, Kesha, thank you. (laughs) The second word of Jesus' rebuke against the scribes and the Pharisees, their, their leaders, has to do with their motivation for ministry. Verse 5, everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long, their religious paraphernalia. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. Jesus knew, because it's not the only time he's brought this up, that one of the greatest dangers to our spirituality is visibility, is the degree to which others can have a window into our life with God, which is why Jesus again and again, and especially in the Sermon on the Mount, commends the practice of secrecy in our spirituality. 
He says, when you pray, do not pray like the pagans who love to be heard on the street corners and think they'll be impressed because of their many words. No, when you pray, go into your closet, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in heaven. And your Father who is in heaven sees what you do in secret, will reward you. And when you fast, don't disfigure your face. Don't make it look all dramatic so people know how religious you are. Instead, wash your face, throw oil on. It's like basically throw on some makeup. Try to look your best so no one else will know that you're fasting. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you give, do not announce it so all the masses can be so impressed with you. But instead, when you give, let your giving be done in secret so that your right hand doesn't know what your left is doing. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus commends us to have a rich, secret life. And perhaps nowhere are the dangers of visibility and self-deception greater than for those who hold some kind of public, visible ministry. And it could be that you lead a group. It could be that you lead a ministry. It could be that you're a person like me who wears a microphone on their face. Eugene Peterson, in his book, uh, Working the Angles, said the image aspects of being a pastor, the parts that have to do with meeting people's expectations can be faked easily. We can impersonate a pastor without being a pastor. The problem, though, is that while we can get away with it in our own communities, often with applause, we can't get by with it within ourselves. At least not all of us. Some of us get restive. We feel awful. No level of success seems to be proof against an eruption of angst in the middle of our applauded performance. The restiveness does not come from Puritan guilt. We're doing what we're paid to do. The people who pay our salaries are getting their money's worth. We're giving good weight. The sermons are inspiring. The committees are efficient. The morale is good. The restiveness comes from another dimension, from a vocational memory, a spiritual hunger, a professional commitment. Being the kind of pastor that satisfies a congregation is one of the easiest jobs on the face of the earth if we are satisfied with satisfying congregations. The hours are good, the pay is adequate, the prestige is considerable. Why don't we find it easy? Why aren't we content with it? Because we set out to do something quite different. Now, in candor, one of the things that motivates me as as our church has grown, as we think about the idea of church planting, one of the things that motivates me to develop more pastors, to be like, I've told our staff, some of you will get this, that I want our, our, our church to be like Narnian soil, to help grow new people, new pastors, new leaders. And one of the reasons in particular that we won't be using like a video venue model of ministry now or ever when we church plant in the future uh, is that we've seen in the last 30 years of American Christianity the danger of spiritual leaders having way too many eyes on them. And the danger is not only to the people in those churches, how many people have walked away from the faith when their pastor had a fall from grace, But the danger is also to the pastor who may feel tempted to believe her or his own press. And the larger the stage, and the greater the visibility, and the greater the motivation there is to put on a good show to satisfy the crowds. 
And so for that reason, what I want to do is launch new churches that are led by new pastors, not merely develop strategies so that more people will listen to me. Now, some of you may be thinking, oh, John, so wise, so great. (laughs) Here's the pickle about the whole thing. Here's the pickle about the whole thing. Even me pointing this dynamic out to you can be deceptive because it suggests to you a story of humility and wisdom on my part as if I'm not prone to the same dangers on a smaller stage. Visibility in all of its forms is dangerous to all of us, which is why Jesus advised us to be on our guard. There are other motivations for ministry that are not great, that are not just visibility, but are similarly precarious. Some people enter ministry because they need people to dominate. They need to be the alpha in a group of people. Some people enter ministry because they need people to complete them. They've got a hole in their heart, an applause-shaped hole in their heart, and they need people to fill it. Some enter ministry because they need others or want others to affirm them. Some people need to help people so they can feel good about themselves. Some people do ministry because it's just another arena in which they can be achievers. Or they need to have a following so they can feel that they are influential. Now, I think that it's helpful whatever work you do to find some kind of sense of alignment or some degree of self-actualization in the work that you do, I think that's important. But ministry is a, or spiritual leadership in general, don't just think paid staff, but spiritual leadership in general is a very dangerous place for a person to try to find themselves. It's a very dangerous place to try to meet your unmet emotional needs. And so many people have been hurt by pastors working out their ministry in order to gain an identity instead of working from an anchored identity that they've found in wrestling with God in the secret place. Whether you're in ministry or not, all of us who are are followers of Jesus have to deal with this question of our motivations. God is concerned with what animates us, with what gets us out of bed in the morning, what what, what drives us in trying to live out the practicalities of our belief. God desires that we would have a perspirant faith. I put on antiperspirant. This didn't work very well. (laughs) I could tell. But God desires that we would have a perspirant faith, that we're putting in the work, that we're sweating it out that it's a living, active, vibrant faith like Jacob wrestling in the garden. God wants us to have a real faith with him in the quiet place that's exercised with modesty in the public place, not merely a performative faith. It's just putting on a good show for others. I think of this often when we pray the liturgy after communion. I say, send us out to do the work you've given us to do. Now, in light of the reading of the scriptures, in light of what's been enacted and gifted to us at the table, Lord, now send us out to do the work you've given us to do. That reflects a perspirant faith where you're sweating it out. You're working out your salvation with fear and trembling. God desires that we would have that kind of faith, not merely a performative one. He wants us not only to do the right things, he does, 
He also wants us to do them in the right ways and for the right reasons. And when in our life with God we're blessed with an awareness of our ulterior motives, it should send us back out to duke it out with God again in the secret place and to repent again and to put our faith in Jesus again. And I think this is precisely what Jesus is after in his teaching. When one realizes the dangers to both the leaders and to those who follow them, when one recognizes the dangers of performative ministry and what makes authentic perspirant ministry more difficult, the more Jesus' teaching in verses 8 through 12 begins to make sense. Jesus says, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you're all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father. Dad, it's Phil from now on, I'm sorry. For you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servants, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, Jesus said the, the leaders love to walk in the marketplace, and people are like, hey, rabbi. Rabbi literally means my great one. At the time of Jesus, it was used in a way that was basically like sir. It had been stripped largely of its meaning, but Jesus is going back to the original meaning of this word. Don't call anyone my great one. Don't ascribe to any teacher or preacher or ministry that kind of clout or status or authority in your life. Now, when he says not to call anyone teacher or instructor or father, Jesus is speaking in hyperbole. He's saying, in other words, let there be no confusion in your appreciation or admiration of a human leader. Don't let, it, don't let anyone ever think that you like them, even flirting with like the same neighborhood is how much you revere and respect God. Let it be so clear in the way that you follow them, listen to them, and also take with grain, a grain, what they say with a grain of salt because they are not God. Let it be so clear that you could say it's basically like we won't call anyone teacher because we have one teacher. God is the one we are to revere. God is the one we are to honor, we are to love, we are to strive to obey. Now, it's fascinating how, how churches have wrestled with this teaching. What's funny is in, in Anglican world, I'm a priest, I don't know if you know that, and it's customary to call an Anglican priest father. It's kind of a holdover from Roman Catholic practice. They're uh, five, four people who call me father because they're my children. And then people who've been in Episcopal churches or Roman Catholic churches will do that too. It's always funny. Often I'm younger than the people who call me father. Um, but it's funny. You can have in church world people who have these honorific titles, father, rector, etc., vicar, who can be the most modest, humble people you've ever met. And there can also be, you know, pastor types who are like, just call me Steve, I'm one of the pastors here, who can lead like tyrants. Sorry, Steve. <laughs> What's important about what Jesus is saying is that we need to hold God, we need to hold God's teaching in such high regard. We appreciate those like from whom it comes, but we do not revere them. We can encourage them, but we will not flatter them. We can appreciate them, but we will not adore them. We can honor them, but we will not pay homage to them. 
And Jesus is inviting us to right-size the way that we think about our spiritual leaders. And so we should read the books. We should listen to the podcasts. We should binge the sermons, but recognize that the source of all wisdom is not Keller or Warren or Willard or Mackey or Comer, but Jesus in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I want you to consider today In what ways is the Lord inviting you to look not without, but within? You're tempted toward being judgmental or critical of other Christians, of those outside the church. And the Lord is inviting you to consider, are there areas of my life, or which ones, which areas of my life is the Lord elevating for me to consider? In what ways am I not practicing these things that I'm harping on and preaching to others? In what ways is my spirituality motivated by something other than desire to love God and love my neighbor from a pure heart? In what way is my ego stroked when people, uh, you know, see me volunteering or leading with children or giving a sermon? In what way do I have ulterior motives? And I think it's also worth each of us considering today, in what ways have we wrongly regarded our leaders? In what ways have we built our faith on somebody else's or on the strength of someone else's personality? For some of us, we could be winging our faith and basically banking on the faith of our parents. And the Lord is inviting us to have a genuine secret life with God. Or you've built your whole spiritual vibe around the the particular flavors of a Christian writer, author, or speaker. And the Lord is inviting you to fix your eyes on Jesus, who is the author of and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus, who will invite us into this wonderfully painful place of denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Him. As we get ready to come to the table, let's just consider, you know, the the world is full of problems. Where is the Lord inviting us to consider their existence in seed and mature form in our own hearts and ask for the Lord's help? We'd have the grace and the courage to deny ourselves take up our cross, to be full of mercy to others, and to follow him. Let's pray. Jesus, I ask that you will show us mercy today. Many of us are doing the best that we can with the best motivation that we can just trying to keep, put one, keep putting one foot in front of the other. I pray that you'll show us mercy today. As the church teaches us to pray, Almighty God, to you all hearts are open and all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ Jesus our Lord. And Lord, you pour out your spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Pray that you make it be for us the body and the blood of Christ so that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. Lord, today as we come in repentance and as we come with faith and thanksgiving, I pray that you will feed and nourish us at the table, that we may find our life, not in a preacher, not in another book, but our life derived from the life of Jesus himself. Pray in his name and for his glory. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. 
If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.